by Ian Murray The Necessity for Discussion An invariable characteristic of true preaching has been the assurance that the proclamation of the gospel is a divinely ordained means for the conviction and conversion of sinners. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. 1 Corinthians 1.21 And in accordance with this persuasion, evangelicals have never been content to preach the word without seeing any change wrought in their hearers. Of the sermons of some men, it has been said, they may be correctly cold and correctly dull, faultily faultless, icily regular, splendidly null. But the man who has a scriptural view of the pulpit and of the gospel will desire to preach like Richard Baxter, as an express from another world, or like McShane, who, as one of his hearers said, preached as if he was a dying, almost to have ye converted. Wherever preaching has ceased to require an individual response, and wherever hearers are left with the impression that there is no divine command requiring their repentance and faith, true Christianity has withered away. The presentation of Christianity as a rehearsal of facts without any attempt to apply these facts to the conscience and without any call to trust in Jesus as a mighty Savior falls far short of apostolic preaching. When two London evangelical ministers of a former generation, Matthew Wilkes and John Hyatt, took their leave of each other as Hyatt was dying, Wilkes asked, Well, John, could you trust your soul in the hands of Jesus Christ now? Yes, came the fervent reply, a million, a million souls. This is the persuasion which is essential to gospel preaching. In the following pages, then, there is no discussion about whether it is right to invite men to come to Christ. That issue should be indisputable to those who believe Scripture. Nor is it an open question whether man's responsibility to repent and believe should be emphasized in evangelism. As we have already said, without such an emphasis, there can be no evangelicalism at all in any biblical sense of the word. Our discussion concerns a different issue, namely, whether it is in the best interest of evangelism to distinguish between hearers at the close of a sermon by inviting those who wish to receive Christ to come to the front. If the invitation system, as this practice may be called, can be shown to rest upon what the scriptures say about coming to Christ or upon what may be legitimately deduced from the doctrine of man's responsibility, then it may be justly claimed that to oppose the system is to oppose scripture. But until this is shown, it cannot be fairly implied that those who do not give the invitation are less concerned with evangelism than those who do. The question as to whether the practice stands on a scriptural basis must be settled first. We cannot be more evangelical than the New Testament. It is probable, however, that some of those who advocate the invitation system would not claim specific scriptural warrant for the practice. They would be content to say that it is a useful and successful method in the fulfillment of a scriptural objective, the bringing of individuals to a personal decision. And it might well be added, because this is simply a question of method, is it worthwhile debating and arguing about it? To the latter question we reply that the practice itself compels debate 
and that for at least two reasons. First, although for more than a hundred years evangelicalism in Britain has sometimes been accompanied by the use of after-meetings or of cards which individuals are to sign as an affirmation of faith, the practice of summoning people to the front as the natural climax of a gospel message and as an integral part of an evangelistic service has been comparatively rare. But the prominence given to the invitation in the Crusades of recent years, coupled with earnest appeals from evangelists that ministers should use the same method, is now forcing all evangelical congregations to examine their former omission. If, as it is represented, the appeal to come forward is the climax of an evangelistic sermon, can churches which are evangelical be satisfied to remain without the practice? And this question is all the more pointed when the numerical success attending the use of the invitation is compared with the small response attending much preaching today. In the contemporary conditions of spiritual need, the testimony which well-known leaders are giving to the value of the invitation is bound to cause discussion among those who are concerned about these conditions. For desiring further discussion before accepting a practice which is not part of the evangelical tradition of this land, Christians should not be blamed. Though for some evangelicals the pragmatic argument for an immediate general adoption of the invitation system, namely the numerical results which have attended its use in the modern crusades, may appear irresistible, there are others who think that a closer scriptural examination of the innovation is necessary before it is received. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Secondly, as Lighton Ford, one of the latest exponents of the invitation system, reminds us, it is essential in using the invitation that the evangelist should give straightforward directions which are clearly understood. All vagueness is to be avoided. The invitation should not be, if there is anyone here who might want to come, you could come, or else you could wait and see me afterward. Let it rather be, God is calling, come now, come here. Yet despite the publicity which has been given in recent years, we think it may be fairly questioned whether even now it is clear just what is being required of those who come forward. Is the walk forward an outward declaration of an inner saving decision already made by the hearer in the seat, just in act of witness? Why then are they told to come forward to receive Christ? How is receiving Christ related to coming forward? Is there any relation? The most popular description of the invitation as an act of commitment to Christ leaves these questions quite unresolved. And unless the system is to shelter behind the vagueness which it professes to avoid, there are certain very fundamental considerations which must be clarified. Before writing the following pages, I sought to understand the case which is put forward for the invitation, both by reading what its advocates have to say and by attending meetings where a public appeal was made for decisions. I do not want to misstate that case. This leads, however, to a difficulty. To shroud an anonymity, the quotations which I shall give would be both irritating to the reader and against the interest of a fair debate. Discussion of a controversial subject demands documented references. On the other hand, the danger is that once names are quoted, interest is switched from the clarification of ideas to the person whose words are under review. 
were it possible to present the arguments for the invitation system in the words of men no longer living, this danger might in measure be avoided. But we know of no former evangelical preacher on record who has used the invitation in precisely the way it is being used today. While statements from Finley or Moody might be interesting in this connection, they could not be taken as the most convincing reasons for the modern use of the system. I have therefore concluded that the only way adequately to present the arguments used to support the practice is to quote directly from the most forceful contemporary spokesman for gospel preaching who uses it, namely Dr. Billy Graham. I can only hope that the reader will prefer this to a veiled and oblique criticism of a position which the American evangelist is well known to hold, and that it will be borne in mind that what is under consideration is not a question of personalities. During the Greater London Crusade in 1966, each meeting included a public invitation and a brief explanation why it was being given. The design of the invitation was professedly simple. Little knowledge and no emotion, the hearers were told, is needed to respond. It is an act of commitment to Christ, expressed by leaving one seat and assembling with others in front of the preacher's platform. The urgency for people to make such a move forward is not conveyed by the working up of any excitement in the meeting, but by the reasons which the preacher gives to prompt a response on the part of the unconverted. To a greater or lesser extent, the sermon has already shown the need of a change in those who do not know Christ, and the importance of the invitation is that it is represented as providing the opportunity for such a change to take place. The hearer is told that his need is to let Christ come into his heart, which is explained as meaning, one, repent, two, receive him by faith, to which Graham adds such words as these, this is how we are going to do it, get up right now and come to the front. Curtis Mitchell, author of Those Who Come Forward, says that the words Graham uses in making an appeal very little, and he gives us the following typical example. I am going to ask you to come forward. Up there, down there, I want you to come. You come right now, quickly. If you are with friends or relatives, they will wait for you. Don't let distance keep you from Christ. It's a long way, but Christ went all the way to the cross because he loved you. Certainly you can come these few steps and give your life to him. To those who hesitate, Graham may add, God is speaking to you. Get up and come right now. A little voice says, You ought to come to Christ. Come now quickly. You may never have another moment. You have to come by faith. You need Christ? You get up now and come. In all this there is no pressure beyond a solemn instance on the one fact that those who were to receive Christ must come to the front. When after moments of silence many are gathered in front of the platform, the spiritual applications of what is being done are again emphasized. Addressing those who have responded to the invitation, Graham says, You have come tonight to Jesus Christ. You have come to receive Him into your heart or give your life to God. You do it now. And in the hope that those He is now addressing have just done this, Graham assures them, He receives you. He died for you. He says, Thy sins are forgiven. You accept that. The past is forgiven. God forgets. He cannot even see your sins. 
except by faith that he comes into your heart. Then follows a prayer which those standing at the front are asked to repeat aloud after the preacher. O God, I am a sinner. I am sorry for my sin. I am willing to turn from my sin. I receive Christ as Savior. I confess him as Lord. From this moment on, I want to follow him and serve him in the fellowship of his church. Before those who have come forward move out of the service to be counseled, Graham finally gives them some practical advice, such as read the Bible, pray, witness, get into the church to worship God. And in these words, the spiritual change in those who have responded is again assumed. You're going to be tempted, but you are his child. Get up again. We turn now to examine the reasons which are given to prove the correctness of giving this invitation at the end of an address. Graham repeatedly gave two major reasons to his hearers at Earl's Court, and there is a third. These are, one, Christ always called people publicly, and this statement is confirmed by texts such as, Follow me, or Whosoever shall confess me before men, him will I confess before my Father which is in heaven. Two, Coming out, it is said, settles it and seals it. We did not hear this elaborated, but the implied meaning seems to be that a step made publicly is more likely to be decisive and irrevocable. There is something about coming forward and standing here. It is an outward expression of an inward decision. 3. According to John Pollock's authorized biography of Graham, the invitation has value as a visual demonstration to the uncommitted. Pollock gives the quotation to the effect that a televised crusade meeting with its invitation and response seen by thousands is more valuable than Graham merely televised from a studio. When the average, more reputable American sees Dr. Graham in a studio telling him he needs to be born again, his first impulse will be to discredit him as a religious fanatic. But if the viewer sees thousands of respectable, normal people listening and consenting to all this he hears, and then sees hundreds voluntarily get up and walk to the front in response to a low-pressure request, he'll begin to consider the message and situation with some sincere, honest interest. It's much easier to say a single speaker is wrong than to discredit the conviction and decision of thousands. The Invitation and Scripture of the three reasons given above, only the first claims direct scriptural support. We have therefore in the first place to consider whether the texts quoted above are decisive either for or against the practice now being discussed. The command of Jesus, follow me, to his future apostles and to others in the days of his flesh is alleged to justify the calling out of people to the front because Jesus demanded an outward identification with himself on the part of those who would be his disciples. But what does follow me or come unto me mean from the lips of the Son of God? Are these primarily directions which require a physical and local movement? That it might sometimes include the local aspect, like Zacchaeus, descent from the tree, is clear enough from the gospel narratives, but even in the days of Christ's visible presence, a spiritual identification with him by repentance and faith was clearly the fundamental sense of the words, and once he was no longer physically present, there could be no other sense. 
No man can now come to Jesus with his feet, and even when he was upon earth, a coming to him in that way never accomplished what it is now implied may be accomplished by those who walk to the front. There is no parallel between the modern appeal to the Lord's words. Nevertheless, the appeal is given as though Christ himself endorses the evangelist's call to get up quickly. He went to the cross to die, bleeding for you. You can come a few steps in this beautiful arena for him. Come now, if you do not receive him, you will die in your sins. Come forward. And consequently those who do assemble at the front are treated as those responding to Christ's command. Michael reports the following typical conversion between Charles Riggs, the director of all the counseling in the 1966 Greater London Crusade, and an inquirer. You've come forward to receive Christ. How do you know this is what you must do? Well, it says so in the Bible. Then God is saying it, isn't he? Yes, I guess he is. And there's no higher authority than God, is there? No, of course not. Then you accept the word of God, don't you? When the answer to the last question is in the affirmative, Michael continues, as is generally the case, Riggs put it all in a capsule for the novice. Think of it like this. He says, God says it. On faith you believe it, and that settles it. As we shall seek to elaborate later, all this reasoning proceeds on the assumption that coming to the front is tenement to, if not identical with, coming to Christ, and it is only where such a confusion of thought exists that a text like Follow Me can be quoted as a proof of the rightness of the practice. We turn then to the second text, which, it is alleged, proves the public invitation to be in harmony with Christ's command, Whosoever shall confess me before men. Matthew 10, verse 32. The point to be settled over this verse is straightforward. Is Christ here saying that by an act of confession we become Christians? Or is he teaching that one indispensable mark of those who are Christians is that they live a life which openly acknowledges him? Is not the modern evangelistic call to confess Christ by coming to the front in order to receive him by faith a reversal of the New Testament order? To confess Christ is the spiritual duty of a Christian. It is no part of the gospel to say that compliance with certain outward duties will help us to become Christians. Yet the whole invitation system inevitably gives the impression that confessing Christ by moving forward is in order to conversion. Graham is quite specific about the fact that the confession which is required in the invitation to walk forward or stand up is for those who until that moment have been non-Christians. J.C. Pollock records how, preaching in Berlin in 1954, Graham, having reached the end of his address, cried, Those who want to decide for Christ, stand up. The interpreter used words that to the German implied, Do you want to confess Christ? Tens of thousands stood. Every deacon, every pastor, every layman, who believed himself a disciple. Billy said, No, no, you must understand. He explained again the meaning of repentance, faith a first-time decision for Christ, the new birth. John Bolton is absolutely sure that the audience understood the second translation. Some sat, large numbers stood. If this confessing of Christ by response to an appeal is not for Christians, it is impossible to see how Matthew 10.32 can be used to support the practice. 
It can only be done by interpreting the confession which Jesus promises to reward in a way which the analogy of Scripture does not allow. If this text were, in fact, a guide to the way sinners are to make a decision for Christ, it would mean a radically new interpretation of scores of texts in the New Testament, texts which evangelical Christians have always understood to give the distinguishing characteristics of those who are truly born again, not the way in which the rebirth takes place. For example, John 8.31 does not teach that remaining faithful to Christ's words makes us true disciples, nor does John 15.8 say that fruit-bearing is the process by which we become true Christians, though these texts, and many others, could be violated to give them such a sense. The distinction we are making here is simply the old Protestant distinction which preached works as necessary evidence of salvation, not as the prior condition of salvation. In this discussion it is not, of course, in dispute whether an initial act of confessing Christ was required by the apostles from those who, receiving the gospel, were consequently admitted into the fellowship of the church. Such a confession was included in baptism. But before anyone concludes that the invitation merely changes the mode in which the confession is made, it has to be asserted that baptism never had the place in evangelism which the invitation system now has. The place of the ordinance in the missionary outreach of the church is to seal those who have professed Christ as a result of teaching, Matthew 28, verse 19. And before that confession could be made in a way which thereafter publicly identified converts with the churches and with Christ, office bearers entrusted with the discipline of the church had to be satisfied that the persons made a credible profession and were instructed in the faith. From some examples in the Acts, it may be argued that this satisfaction may be obtained in a very brief time. But the experience of the churches after their initial formation by the apostles proved otherwise. Hence arose that class of person called catechumens, and later in the church history, the awakened who were not immediately received into the full membership of the churches by public profession as soon as they indicated an interest in the gospel. General biblical principles, such as lay hands suddenly on no man, confirmed by the long record of church history, shows that the sudden public profession of Christ by persons whose experience has been tested neither by time nor by the examination of pastors is calculated to be disastrous. For this very reason we know of no evangelical minister who would at once baptize people who respond at the end of a service. Baptism and coming to the front are two essentially different things. One is an act which confirms the promises of salvation to believers. The other is a device intended to help men become believers. One bears witness to salvation. The other is represented as actually accomplishing something towards our salvation. One is an action commanded by Christ, the other is not. C.G. Finney, 1792-1875, apparently the first professed evangelist to call people forward during a service to a position which he called the anxious seat, defended the practice on the grounds that it answered the purpose which baptism had in the days of the apostles. Professor Dodd of Princeton commented on this argument though he supposes that the anxious seat occupies the precise place that baptism did, 
we can by no means consent to receive it as an equivalent. Baptism was indeed a test of character, since obedience or disobedience was exercised in view of a divine command. But the anxious seat cannot operate thus, except by arrogating to itself a similar authority. Before leaving this examination of the alleged scriptural evidence for the invitation system, we may note a certain inconsistency amongst those who approve of this practice. For example, Harold J. Ockinga of Boston, speaking at the World Congress of Evangelism, convened in Berlin under the chairmanship of Billy Graham, autumn of 1966, judged that it was valid to use or not to use the invitation because conversions occur in both instances. We must conclude that we cannot be exclusive in our methodology, nor can we sit in judgment upon those who use a different methodology in evangelism from our own. Ockinger appears to argue that both the use and the non-use of the invitation are right, as God blesses both ministries. But, if the evangelist's choice of employing the invitation is an optical one, it cannot have scriptural evidence to warrant it. For in that case, the evangelical preacher would be under an obligation to have no option. If there is biblical authority for the practice, the non-user is failing in duty, even though God may bless his ministry in spite of its deficiency. On the other hand, if there is no biblical authority, the argument that Jesus always called people publicly must be dropped. The measure of uncertainty in those who use the invitation system over the scriptural evidence is perhaps not unrelated to the importance they give to subsidiary arguments and to those we now turn. The Psychological Argument The second argument used to support the invitation is expressed by the words, There is something about coming forward that settles it. This is evidently an appeal to what is regarded as a sound interpretation of the human personality. The unwillingness of the unconverted is regarded as the basic spiritual problem. This problem the spirit meets by conviction of sin. When this occurs, the individual experiences misery, and this misery brings about pressure on his will to do something about it. At this point, the evangelist must strike in with an invitation which provides, Graham believes, the right emotional outlet for those in this troubled condition. Defending the practice, he argues, Many psychologists would say it is psychologically sound. One of the reasons why our films and television dramas usually have a bad effect is because they stir the emotion to a high pitch and do not offer any practical outlet for action. In one of the latest books to support the invitation system, The Christian Persuader, Lighten Ford puts the same argument more fully. I am convinced that the giving of some kind of public invitation to come to Christ is not only theologically correct, but also emotionally sound. Men need this opportunity for expression. The inner decision for Christ is like driving a nail through a board. The open declaration of it is like clinching the nail on the other side, so that it is not easily pulled out. Impression without expression can lead to depression. Professor William James said, When once the judgment is decided, let a man commit himself. Let him lay on himself the necessity of doing more. Let him lay on himself the necessity of doing all. Let him take a public pledge, if the case allows. Let him envelop his resolution with all the aids possible. These quotations summarize the psychological case for the invitation. 
Regarding the consent of man's will as the main objective to be gained, it is supposed that a response which involves action before others will commit the people's wills more surely than if they were left individually to seek Christ in private. Thus Ford, linking the alleged biblical argument with the psychological, represents the advantage of the appeal to come forward as a means of obeying Christ's command to confess him before men, in a step which will help to make the decision definite and clear-cut. Such is the weakness of the will, and so closely, it is presumed, are the operations of the Spirit to be identified with the actual procedures of the meeting, that to fail to give the invitation at the decisive moment is to risk a cessation of the pressure and consequently the possible loss of souls who may relapse into their former state of unwillingness. The great need, then, is for the will to be immediately and openly committed, and the more public the action, the less likely is a relapse. Presumably it is for this reason that even when the place in which the meeting is held makes coming to the front inconvenient, the invitation system favors the raising of the hand or the waving of a handkerchief and the preference to no public action at all. This reasoning, which was first clearly related to evangelism by the cool intellect of Charles G. Finney in the 1830s, claims to be psychologically sound. It seems to be more or less what Graham means by a public response, settling it for the individual. The following incident may illustrate the point. A few years ago, Graham was preaching in London on a Sunday night. The end of his sermon at 8.30 p.m. was immediately followed by a broadcast half-hour of him singing so that he was not able to give the invitation till the broadcast ended. The response was then disappointing, and Graham found the explanation for this in the fact that the call did not at once follow the sermon. In other words, the pressure was off after 30 minutes had elapsed, and the effect of the appeal was consequently diminished. It has not, however, escaped the notice of some who are also interested in psychology, who do not claim to be evangelicals, that the very fact that the invitation system harmonizes with certain features in our psychological makeup leaves it open to serious objections. These critics argue that the way conversions are produced under this system by a pressure on the will is little different from the way in which conversions, which make no claim to be Christian at all, often take place. The conditioning of a large crowd of people in a controlled environment with methods of persuasive suggestion leading to a demand for a public response an emotional release is psychologically certain, they say, to provide results, regardless of whether the crowd meets in the name of religion, entertainment, or politics. Modern psychiatrists like William Sargent have analyzed some of the psychological processes which make this the case, and crusade opponents like George Targent have, on these grounds, subjected the invitation system to an uncomfortable scrutiny. All present are told to pray, instructed to close their eyes and bow the head, and the form of words is the auto-suggestive one that hundreds of others are already going forward, finding happiness, peace, love, God. The counselors planted all over the audience make the first few moves, create the sense that the statement is true even when it very often is not. It might all be true, there might be some nameless peace down there with all the others, the tension screws to a breaking point and beyond. 
The wonder is that so few actually obey. The Billy Graham organization has repeatedly disavowed in recent years the presence of any emotional element in the meetings, influencing the will to act when the appeal is given, and it is often pointed out that the hymn, Just As I Am, I Come, which used to be sung while the invitation was being given, is no longer used. But this ignores the fact that the main pressure on the people to come forward was and is the idea constantly conveyed by the preacher that the step forward is of great spiritual importance. Linked with this in the clear implication that a failure to respond in the manner required is a deliberate refusal to obey God. This alone is enough to account for tension, says Mitchell, Graham's friend, with regard to the invitation. His plea may be soft-spoken, but it is packed suddenly with an electric urgency. The hymn may have been dropped, but the teaching that those who get up are coming to Jesus still underlies the whole invitation. We did not quote Target because we think that his psychology is sound when it comes to understanding the supernatural ways of God in bringing dead sinners to life, but we believe that because Graham's thinking is also defective at this point, his practice is open to charges which could not be made if he kept more closely to biblical evangelism. Yet not only does Graham not meet these charges satisfactorily, he seems unaware of the danger there is in attempting to justify the invitation or conversion itself by appeals to psychology. In a sermon on conversion, which is printed in Those Who Come Forward, the evangelist appeals to the testimony of psychologists to show man's need of conversion. A Chicago psychologist once said, This generation needs converting more than any generation in history. A famous British psychologist recently said, We are so psychologically constituted as to need converting, and if the church fails to convert people, we psychologists are going to have to do it. So even psychology is recognizing the need for man to be converted. The Bible teaches that you must be converted to enter heaven. The psychiatrist teaches that you must be converted in order to get the most out of life. These might be passed over as somewhat unguarded statements, but what are we to say of the following explanation of the appeal to go forward at the close of a sermon? It is given by the author of the above book, who is described by Graham in his preface as being in a unique position to observe his work. Wherever he is, if a man goes forward, either in fact or in spirit, the result is a change. What takes place? Psychologists, psychiatrists, theologians, and evangelists have all tried to explain. Gordon Allport, noted psychiatrist, says, A man's religion is the audacious bid he makes to bind himself to creation and the Creator. It is his ultimate attempt to enlarge and complete his personality by finding the supreme context in which he rightly belongs. Then perhaps conversion is the ultimate spiritual step towards that end. We hope enough has been said to show that a defense of the invitation in the name of psychology is a perilous procedure which may ultimately lead to the discrediting of true evangelical experience altogether. When it comes to the things of God, modern psychology is a broken reed. But if, instead of recognizing it as such, we treat it as an authority, there will be a nemesis ahead for evangelicalism. Biblical practices do not need the endorsement of modern psychology. And while we need to defend the truth before an unbelieving world, 
it is no part of our commission to justify practices which are not biblical by the precacious method of an appeal to the opinion of psychologists. The truth is that under all preaching, and especially where there are large crowds, there will be results which can be explained on a purely naturalistic basis. David Hume, the 18th century philosopher who scorned the gospel, noted a colorful instance of this when he was present in an immense open-air gathering where George Whitfield was preaching. So vast was the crowd that those on the circumference were quite beyond earshot of the preacher. Yet Hume says that as he wandered on the outskirts of the congregation, he was amazed at the evidences of emotion which met him at every step. He paused at length by the side of a woman who was weeping piteously and inquired, My good woman, what are you crying for? Oh, sir, for the parson's sermon. But can you hear what the parson is saying? No, sir. Have you heard anything since he began? No, sir. Pray tell me then, what for do you cry? Oh, sir, don't you see the holy wag of his head? Hume's jeer has a point. Some people can be conditioned by a large crowd. No doubt, if 18th century gospel preachers had given an appeal, they would have had many like this woman coming forward. When they chose rather to leave the credit of their ministry in the gospel to change lives and characters, they cut away the grounds of criticism which a public appeal would have given Hume, the predecessor of many modern psychologists, had he observed individuals such as this woman going to the front and they also spared themselves the unedifying necessity of having to demonstrate how many of those who thus publicly accepted Christ endured. It is certainly possible to argue that the psychological argument, far from supporting the validity of the invitation system, exposes further reasons for calling it into question. Worldly wisdom, whether in the form of philosophy or psychology, will never ultimately be found to be an ally of the gospel. The Invitation as a Visual Demonstration The third argument for the invitation system, given in Pollock's authorized biography of Graham, might be passed over, for it is not a formal reason given by the evangelist himself why here should come forward. The argument is that the approach of hundreds or thousands to the front is a visual demonstration to the remainder who are uncommitted, confirming the truth which has been preached. Yet while Graham may not announce that he wants the invitation to have this effect, both the crusade policy and his spoken words are directed to that end. There are many people coming to Christ in Earl's Court tonight, coming down every aisle, he would report during the Greater London Crusade of 1966, to those who were having the service relayed to them in other centers. The information was clearly meant to assist people in the unseen audiences in other parts of the country to make their decision and they were told to go to the front as the crowds were doing in Earl's Court. Similarly, when the Earl's Court crusade was drawing to its conclusion, Graham, in giving the invitation, prompted others to respond by using such words as, Tens of thousands will have come to know Christ, presumably a reference to the thousands who had walked to the front in the preceding weeks. The statistics of those who respond are used to buttress the visual argument. The public appeal is meant to have an effect on uncommitted onlookers who either observe or hear reports of others going forward. It is difficult to understand Graham's mind at this point. 
Although the outward response is represented as deciding for Christ, Graham knows that the walk forward does not itself save anyone. He also knows, as he once indicated in a television interview with Kenneth Harris, that to get a small minority of people to really believe is more biblical than to expect the simultaneous conversion of large crowds. But if the crowds are not in fact being converted night by night, as onlookers are led to think, why persist in this invitation method at all? Those who are under the saving operation of the Spirit of God would not suffer from the absence of this method, and they could be put in touch with other Christians without being publicly called forward before the service has ended. One can only conclude, as Pollock has affirmed, that the invitation method is considered to have such an evangelistic value that it must be retained. In other words, the action is important, not so much to the individual who comes forward, he may or may not later prove spurious, but to the production of the total impression which the common action of a large group makes upon the rest of the meeting, an impression which Graham considers highly desirable. Doctrinal Implications As we see it, this brings us to the main point in the present discussion. The convergence of large numbers before the preacher's platform may be very impressive, but can it play any part in the conversion of onlookers? This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. 
The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.